0: And today we get back into John chapter 5. Now, I think that it's important before we get into this, since it's all building on itself, since there's one thrust and one purpose of the book of John, that we go back and kind of revisit where we've been so far. Um, John chapter 1 opens up with this theological prologue. It's where the writer John is making these statements about who Jesus is. We see it start with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we see that Jesus is recognized not as this created being, that he is creator, that he is God. He was there from the very beginning. And so we see the foundations for the doctrine of the Trinity here, that there is one God in three parts. And the next we are introduced to this guy by the name of John the Baptist that we usually call John the Baptist. But in the book of John, he's actually presented as John the witness. Um, When we look at this, it says in John 1-7 that he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And so this initial thing, this idea of witness, is going to be one that's very familiar to the book of John. That we're going to see these witnesses come to the forefront to testify that Jesus is Lord. We're going to see these miracles and these signs come forward to testify that Jesus is Lord. And then we get to the point where we have this proclamation of John. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we see some of the disciples of John leave John's side. And they go and they be disciples with Jesus. And then we move to this new section. And in this new section, many commentators call it the book of signs. And the reason why is because we're going to start seeing these miracles laid out, these signs of who Jesus is. And and depending on who you talk to, either there are seven or eight signs. They're broken up differently. And we've already covered a couple of these. But the first one is the turning of water into wine in John 2, 1 through 12. We talked about that. We talked about how it is a, a miracle in and of itself, but it's also a picture of something that is complete in Christ Jesus, that we see that the wine represents joy, and Jesus is the better joy. He's the better wine. And then we saw the healing of the royal official's son, and we see that it's not just about this physical healing, that it's that if Jesus has authority over disease and over death, then he has authority over everything. And then today we're going to see the healing of the paralytic at Bethesda, at the pool, And you would think this is going to be another one of these authority over disease kind of things. But ultimately, we're going to see that it's an authority over the Sabbath thing. And and then after this, we'll see the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, the healing of the man born blind, the raising of Lazarus, and then ultimately the resurrection of Jesus, which is this final, grand, greatest thing that we're going to see and that we're going to see all the other signs fulfilled in that. Now, why do we just call these signs? Why do, why do we not just say that these are miracles? The reason why is in John 2, 11. it says this, the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed. And so the book of John calls these signs. And if we're gonna call them signs instead of just these miracles, we need to have an understanding of what a sign is and why these are called signs. We've talked about this before. But one commentator says this, the concept of a sign is familiar in the Old Testament. It's used especially of events, both normal and supernormal, that demonstrate the truth of God's word through his prophet and so authenticate the prophet himself. So the first part of this is that the signs are there to authenticate that Jesus carries the authority of God here, that God is behind what's happening. He goes on to say, It also denotes events that herald things to come, especially in relation to the eschatological future. As in the synoptic gospels, so in the fourth gospel, so this is talking specifically about John, the fourth gospel, the miraculous deeds of Jesus attest that the promises relating to the kingdom of God are actualized in and through Jesus. Jesus. Our evangelist goes one step further in viewing the miracles as parables of the kingdom, which comes through the total work of the Son of God. And so it's important that we have this in our mind, that we don't look at these as simply standalone miracles, though they would be miraculous all on their own. We need to make sure that when we see these signs that our mind is brought to three different things. Number one, they are miraculous deeds. They are a miracle. But we need to remember, number two, that these are used to authenticate the power, authenticate the message, authenticate the authority of Jesus. And this isn't uncommon elsewhere in Scripture. Think of Exodus, right? Think of the signs that were given to Moses. That that connects with all of this. And then the last thing, it is going to point to a future event. So it's going to be a parable to point forward to something that is fulfilled in the resurrection. And when we look at this, all of this makes perfect sense when we see what the point of the book of John is. And we see that in John 20, 31. It says that these are written, these things, the things that John presents here are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so what is this book about? It's about evidences. It's about proclaiming. That Jesus is God, it's about these things. And so all of these signs have a purpose. They fit within the purpose of the author so that you might believe and that through believing you may have eternal life. Let's pray before we get into our scripture. God, thank you so much for today. Lord, I ask that you be with us, that your Holy Spirit speak to us. And Lord, that the purpose of this book hold true, that through it some may see your goodness and your glory be drawn to you, and even this day, respond. God, I thank you for being with us and ask that you um, speak to us, that you convict us, and that you mold us. In Jesus' name, amen. So 5.1 says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, we're not told which feast this is. We're just told that it is a feast. And that's gonna be very important as we work through this story. We need to keep that in the back of our mind um, because it is going to help us paint the picture of what's going on in this story. So uh, a lot of people say that it's Passover. And if it is Passover, these people like to make connections to the sheep gate um, at at the bottom of the city. And they make connections with the Lamb of God. I'm afraid that that's going a little bit too far far um, but I'm not saying it's Passover, I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying that in the text it doesn't tell us, but it is very important that it is a feast that Jesus went for a feast. So let's keep that in our mind as we study this. Verse two says, "Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So the location of this place is the pool at Bethesda. And we see that this is a place where we see the sick, the blind, those that would have been ostracized by society, those that would have been pushed aside by society. And we see that it's a place that is identified as two pools with these colonnades around it. It's very descriptive, but I also brought a picture for you so that you can see it. Um, This is at the church of St. Anne, and it's also called St. Anne's Pool. If you were to want to go and and visit it today, you can actually go there. Now, one of the things about this pool that you need to know is that it's at the base of the city. And, And by base, I literally mean lower elevation of the city. And so this pool would have been a place where if it rained, the runoff of the city were to go. There's actually a drainage system that was built by the Romans that empties into this pool. And so we are not talking about clean water at all. We're not talking about the most sanitary place. This is not you being down in Destin, clear water, and venturing out into the gulf where you can see the bottom and it's beautiful. This isn't somewhere that you go for recreation. That's what I'm trying to say. This isn't the place that you go to say, ah, it's like a spa day. No, this is a place that is not clean. This is a place that is dirty, This is a place where the people congregated that would have been pushed out of society. It's far from the center of society. It's far from the center of the city. And all of these people that had these issues were here. And when we think about this in context of the Sabbath, I think it's really important. One of the busiest days of the Jewish year. People are all in the city. People are going to the temple. They may maybe making sacrifices. Maybe they're going for worship. Maybe they're feasting. All of these things are going on. All of these great things are going on in the city. And yet there are these that have been pushed away by society that this is their congregation point. This is where they are. With all the festivities going on, this is where they end up. And I think it's absolutely amazing that this is where, when Jesus goes to the feast, this is where he goes. He, he doesn't go to the temple. He doesn't go and rub elbows with the religious elite. He, he doesn't go where you would think he is going to go. What does he do instead? He goes to the least of these. And this reinforces that idea. That's why Jesus comes, that Jesus comes to to minister to us. He comes to minister to all of us while we are sinners, while we are dead. That's why Jesus comes, comes to bring us new life. The author Philip Philip Yancey says this, grace like water descends to the lowest point. I love that quote because it's such a beautiful picture of what's going on in our story today, right? All the water is running off to the lowest spot. All of the people that have been pushed out by society are at the lowest spot, and yet that is where Jesus goes with his grace, is to the lowest spot. Don't lose that picture. Now the next question is why are all of these people here? When we read the, the passage Did anybody freak out when we went from verse three to verse four, I mean, to verse five? Did anybody in their Bible actually have verse four? Raise your hand, anybody? Uh, The modern translations don't have it. The reason that they don't have it is because we don't believe that it is part of the original gospel of John. We think that it is tradition that has made its way in as an explanation. Now the question is, do we throw it away? I don't think we do. Listen to what your Bible would read if it did have the end of verse 3 and verse 4. And if you want to find it, you can go to the New King James because that's the version that I'm going to use. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, and waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first... After the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. That's an interesting story, right? If that were true, would that bring clarity to why all of these people were there? Would it bring clarity why these people were willing to get in basically the sewage trap of the city? there's something to this. There's something in the tradition to this. Now, I'm not saying um, that it's canon. I'm not saying that you must believe it. But if you ask me if I put any stock in this, I say, why not? I really do. I say, why not? Why do I say, why not? Well, because I've kind of read the rest of Scripture. And I see things that make this not even sound far-fetched. I mean, think about it for just a minute. Uh, When you read Acts chapter 8 we see the very first beam me up Scotty moment. I mean, Phillips is, Phillips there with the Ethiopian and he's talking and then I'm somewhere else. And he doesn't even act like it's a big deal. If that were me, I'd be what just happened? Like that would actually be noted in scripture because I would lose my mind. I was there and now I'm not, I'm here. But that was there, but I'm here. And we would lose our mind. That seems like a big, big thing compared to an angel coming stirring the water. Oh, you want another one? Acts chapter five, don't believe me, read it. Peter's walking down the street, and folks are throwing themselves pretty much in a shadow. Like, they want to be in a shadow. Why? Because wherever a shadow hits, they're healed. It, it's there. Go read it. So, an angel stirring the water doesn't seem far-fetched. Oh, you want to know my favorite one? There's zombies in the Bible. Matthew 27. You guys remember this story? The graves open up. Folks get up out of their graves. start walking into Jerusalem. <laughs> Uh, it's not like the Disney film, kids, they're not dancing while they go. But it, it's, they, they get up and they go in and, and they're, they're a testimony to the resurrection that's happened. So this idea of an angel stirring the water and folks being healed, I'm like, why not? But the question is, is does that matter to the rest of the story? You cannot believe it and it's fine. But what I'm going to ask you to do is not get trapped on this verse. Don't miss the forest for the trees, because if you get trapped right here, I promise you're going to miss the entire point. I'm just saying, why not? And if it is true, it does bring complete clarity to what's happening in this passage. John uh, 5, verse 5 says this one man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Now, this kind of points back to John 1.12. You guys remember when we hit that passage and we were like that Jesus knew all men, that he, he knew their hearts, he knew who they were, that he had divine insight into them. And so I don't think it's that Jesus met this guy. I don't think it's that he had heard stories about the guy. I think it was just that Jesus knows all people, that he knows us, that he knew him. He knew the situation that he was in. And he goes to this man and asks the craziest question. Do you want to be healed? I I, I would be thinking, man, that is terribly insensitive. If I were a bystander at the time, I would have been like, he's been here for this long. He's been paralyzed. He's been an invalid. He's been here waiting to be healed for 38 years. Why would you even ask this guy that question? That is terribly insensitive, but it's not. The reason why it's not insensitive is because Jesus does this all the time. Jesus asked the question to draw something out of the person to bring something to the forefront of their mind for the main issue that he's dealing with. Didn't he do this with the um, Samaritan woman at the well? You guys remember that story? He said, hey, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus is like, you're right, you've had five, and the dude you're with now isn't your husband either. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Uh, he, he's calling things out. He is asking things. He's engaging in conversation to bring to the forefront the thing you need the most. Jesus and Nicodemus, he starts talking about this whole reborn again thing. Why? Because Nicodemus was a religious leader. He he was trapped in the law, and he's saying Jesus is saying, "Look, it's not about the law. It's not about all of these things. You must be reborn. You must be transformed." And that is what Jesus is doing: is that Jesus is drawing out what this man thinks that his hope is in. And so, when Jesus says, "Do you want to be healed?" He is asking, "What's your end goal here? What's your hope?" And he's bringing to the forefront the thing that the guy thinks is the most important thing in his life. His perceived need that blocks all the other needs. What is that thing in his mind that he must have? Verse seven, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. So Jesus said, do you wanna be healed? Did the guy say yes? Did the guy say no? What does he do instead? Starts making excuses. Well, I'm, I mean, yeah, I mean, I would like to, but I can't get down there. When the pool's stirred, folks cut in in front of me. There's no one to take me down there. And so what is he doing? It's almost like he is in this blame victim spiral right now. Instead of, yes, I want to be healed. Will you help me? Are you the guy that's going to help take me down there? He's like, no, I, I, this is happening. This is why I'm not this is who I am. This is why I'm not healed. And a lot of us today, we experience that with people in our life sometimes too. Like we talk to them about things and they're like, this is just who I am. I, I can't be any better than this. I can't do anything better than this. And understand that what they're saying is truth. They can't. But the Lord can fix it all. And so we need to understand that what's happening here is that Jesus asked a question and then this man is responding with where he thinks his hope is. What is his hope? It is physically getting down to that pool, getting into the pool at the right time, and then he's healed. And if he's healed, then everything in life is fine. That is all that he needs. That's all he's looking for. Verse eight says, Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and he walked. I love this passage because it doesn't happen how it's supposed to. How is it supposed to happen? Well, it's supposed to happen like this. And you guys have heard this story before. Jesus is supposed to ask this guy if he wants to be healed. And then the guy is supposed to say, ah, oh, son of David, have mercy on me. Like some of the other instances we have. The guy is supposed to show that he has a whole bunch of faith first. That, that he's got this intense faith that Jesus can heal him and then he's going to heal him. That's the way in our mind it's supposed to happen. But how does it happen? This guy doesn't even know who Jesus is. We're going to find out later. And Jesus says, get up and walk. See, uh, it, it messes. With our idea of what healing is, how healing happens, it, it messes it all up. And the reason why is because we see in this story that it's an overflow simply of the grace of God. Hey, I'm going to heal you, and I'm going to heal you for a purpose. It, it's going to show something. It's going to show my glory, and we're going to see what all of that is as we move through the passage. But understand that it was not his intensity of faith that healed him because God didn't have any. His only hope was in the physical. His only hope was get me bodily down to that pool. If I'm bodily down in that pool and then that physical water is stirred, I will be healed and that'll fix everything. That was his hope. And yet Jesus steps in and says, yes, but watch this. Get up and walk and take your mat. And this messes with so many things. It messes with our mind, and it should. Guys, it's simply by the grace of God. Don't think that your faith is not intense enough. (laughs) Don't don't think that you have to do enough and muster enough. We've been working through these five solas, and that's what we've been talking about, right? It's not about you. It's all about the glory of God. And this man had his entire mind, his entire hope, set on this outside thing that he could do to get healed. And Jesus comes and flips it on his head. Now, when we look at this, we see that, uh, that Jesus, instead of saying, let me get you to the pool, let me take you down there, which is probably what the guy was sort of expecting, Jesus spoke. It was a supernatural healing. And he said, get up and walk. And at the end of verse nine, we see, where the entire point of the story is going. See, you would think that right there is the point of the story, that Jesus heals by speech, and that is our big, great thing, that one day we're going to, and we try to build off of that, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story comes in the next part. Now that day was the Sabbath. This is where things start getting interesting, now, before we get into this whole Sabbath thing, we need to understand that the Sabbath is a day set apart by the Lord. It's a day of rest. It is special. But what has happened over the years is that we see traditions and fences built around the laws of the Lord to protect them, as if God's statutes need protecting. But, but uh, legalists. That, that the Jews, they built things around this to protect it. And so they started trying to define what work is on the Sabbath, things that you could and couldn't do. Um, Kyle told a story in pastor's community um, this week about the Sabbath elevators when he was in Jerusalem, which I thought was kind of funny because I never really thought about this. But, but he said that pushing a button on the Sabbath is considered work. So like right now, I'm breaking the Sabbath. I'm pushing buttons on a phone. And what does that mean? Well, what if you're staying in a high-rise building? What if you're in uh, a hotel that's 17, 20 floors tall? How do you get to your room? I can't take the steps because that's labor. Um, I can't get in the elevator and push the button. Why? Because that's work too. I can't get on the elevator because I can't push the up arrow to make the door open, right? I am stuck. And so what do I do? I sleep in the lobby. No they have set this up so that the elevators become sabbath elevators and they move on their own so you get a door opens by itself you get in on floor one you need to go to floor 17 it gets to floor two and opens all right guys you, you off here oh so nobody's here okay cool i would push the door close button but that'd be a sin i'd go to hell um so oh look the door's closing all right cool We are now to floor three. There it is. All right. We've only got a bunch more of these. And so, like, the elevators would go on their own, and you got in. Unless, of course, you've got Gentile Kyle Brashears that walks in and is willing to push a button for you. So Kyle gets in and pushes a button, and he's he's ready to go up to his room. And the folks in the elevator are like, oh, look, a Gentile. We can get him to take us to our floor. And he said, so they were like, six, please, (laughs) please, 10. And so they were like, we don't care if you go to hell, but we're not. This Gentile, push all the buttons for us. And so, but the thing is, is that they've built all of these things around the law to protect it. Like they they put these fences up to protect it. And let's just be honest. Was pushing elevator buttons part of making the Sabbath holy? (laughs) No. It was, hey, we want to measure how good we are at keeping the Sabbath. We want something physical that we can measure if we kept the Sabbath or not, which is why you count how many steps, which is why you can't do certain things. You prepare all your food the day before, which is why you can't make a phone call, and you sure can't get on an elevator without a good Gentile there. Verse 10, we're going to see something else that was illegal on the Sabbath because it was work. Watch this. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they said to him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn and it was a crowded place. The guy is healed, he still has no idea who healed him. No idea. Does that mess up with your doctrine of healing in your head? Is that, is that just destroying your world right now? Good, because it should. Uh, it, it's, it's not, again, it's not the intensity of our faith. But what we see in this is astounding to me. Think about this just a minute. A guy that had been paralyzed, he was an invalid. He, he couldn't walk, he couldn't do anything. And he comes walking the mile uphill to the temple holding his mat. God has done something miraculous and what did the religious do? You know you can't carry your mat up here, right? I, I know you were that guy that's been on there for 38 years. But, but what I'm saying is you, you, you just sinned. You can't carry your mat. See, they were so caught up in the law. They were so so caught up in what they were supposed to do that they didn't even care. They they couldn't rejoice in this amazing, miraculous, powerful work of God on the Sabbath and during a feast to celebrate the Lord. They couldn't find a way to celebrate him in this miraculous healing. Because why? You did that wrong. Man, that's pathetic. God's not going to honor that. And that was their focus. That was where they were. And what this does is it reveals something about them. I find this amazing. Because see, the guy at the pool thought that his only hope was that his physical physical healing would come through something physical, right? If he could just get in the water when it was stirred, he could be healed. So he had a physical problem and saw a physical solution. Look at this. What are the Jews saying? We have a physical uh, problem. We can't break the law. We've got to honor God. And so what is our physical solution? We must honor the law. These two people have the exact same problem. They see their ailment and their solution as both physical and have completely missed the point. They, They have completely missed what is happening and so as the man says, if I could just get some help or if I could just get in the water, I would be healed. The Jewish leaders say, if I could just keep the law perfectly, then I would be healed see, they're doing the same thing. And this is why it's so important that we do what we've done for the last six weeks, that we go back and we look at the doctrine of salvation. We go back and we look at who completes this in us. It's who the story is about. It's for the glory of God. Because if not, we start basing everything off of our performance and what we can do. Something else that this shows that is absolutely miraculous is that Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. See, they believed that only God had authority over the Sabbath, and guess what? They were right. And so what is this miracle showing? Jesus is God. See, he has authority over the Sabbath. He is God. And let me tell you something, they were not fans of that. <laughs> they were not fans at all of that. As a matter of fact, this is the process that moves them from curiosity in the person of Jesus to animosity in the person of Jesus, right? I had to do that. I was, I'm a preacher, right? So curiosity to animosity. And this is where they want to know about him. They want to see who he is. They want to see what he's doing to, oh, I hate this guy. Why? He broke the law, and that's enough. And this is ultimately going to be the starting path, the thing that starts moving toward the cross, The fact that the religious leaders begin to hate Jesus because he's a lawbreaker. He's a blasphemer. He's claiming to be God. God wouldn't break his own laws. And they start moving in that direction. Verse 14 says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus Who had healed him. So we see an interesting picture here. We see a man paralyzed, broken, pushed away, ostracized at the bottom of the city. We see Jesus meet him there. And then where's the next place we see Jesus meet him? At the temple. Well healed, whole physically, and at the highest point in the city. And I think that there's a neat picture there. Now, we need to make sure that we don't jump to too many conclusions here. If I were to take a poll of you, we would probably have half and half, and I won't. You don't have to raise your hand. But in your mind, think about this. In this story, did the man come to faith in who Christ Jesus said that he was? Or did he walk away and go and tell on Jesus to the Jewish leaders, and did he never convert? The text doesn't say it. That's it. Could, could you read that either way? Absolutely, you could. Go through and read it and see. And so we need to make sure also that we don't get caught up on that. And so if that's not the point, if that's not what all of this is going toward, what is the point? And the point is, is that if I had to lean toward one, I would lean toward the fact that he has understood who Jesus is, that he does have faith in him. And it's because of this last verse. But again, you can't hang everything on this. But this is also the point of most of this. Look at this verse. See you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. This is a tough verse if we're not careful. This verse has led many people to believe terrible things. What has this verse led people to believe? Well, if Jesus says, go and sin no more, or bad, worse things are going to happen to you than being paralyzed, right? Because he's talking to the paralytic. Then I guess that when bad things happen, it's because you sinned. And, and it's led people to conclusions like this. You have an uncurable ailment. I guess you sinned. See, God's, God's judging you. God just, he's. He's doing this thing um, to you He's and, and build all sorts of terrible things. That is not what is being said here. That is not. Because if we do that, we're doing the exact same thing that the Jewish leaders did in this story. They're looking at the people down by the pool. They're looking at all of these people that have been pushed out by society and say, Oh, those are just messed up sinners. God's judging them. Let him have his way because they did something wrong. That's not what's being said here. What is being said, and how do I know this? Because it's a message that has already shown up in the book of John. What's being said here is moving from physical to spiritual. Don't believe me? Well, the woman at the whale. They're talking about water. Jesus is thirsty. She draws some water out, and then Jesus says this. If you knew who I was, you would ask me for water. And she's like... (laughs) What? I think about this. He didn't have anything to draw it with. She's the only one that has anything to draw water with. And, and this starts getting really confusing. But what is Jesus talking about? He took this spiritual thing and he moved it from spiritual, I mean, from physical over to spiritual. He's now talking about spiritual stuff. With Nicodemus, you must be reborn. Nicodemus is like, "How do I do that? You can't like, be born again. You can't re-enter your mother's womb and be born again. What are you talking about? It's a physical thing. But what is Jesus doing? He's talking about the spiritual. What is happening here? It is a physical thing that moves to the spiritual. What is he saying? Go and sin no more. Go in faith. Go honoring God. Why? Because you need to be concerned about your spiritual paralysis. You need to be concerned about spiritual things. See, we're not talking about physical stuff anymore. We're talking about a a spiritual transformation. We're talking about a transformation that is the real healing that the guy needs. And so this command of Jesus is not about if you go and commit a sin, this time your leg is going to fall off instead of just not be able to use it. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying you need to understand That there is something so much greater than the body. There's something so much greater than the physical. And that is what I come to heal. That is what I've come for. That is why all of this is in place right now. It is that God revealing himself through history is not for your physical body. Though you've been healed physically and I rejoice in that. It's about something much, much bigger than that. And when we take all of this together, it points to why John is writing. Remember? Remember? So that we would know that Jesus is the son of God, the Messiah. And that by believing on him, you would have eternal life. See, that's the whole point of this healing. That's the whole point of this spiritual healing. The whole point of it is, is that God is the greater healer. That Christ is the greater healer. That that it's not about physical, it's about spiritual. That Christ has authority over the Sabbath. Why? Because he's God. And in this message, the purpose is so that you will believe. And if we look at the conclusion of this story, what's it doing? It's backing up that prologue. In the beginning was the word, which is Christ, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Believe that Jesus is God. Believe that he is who he said he was. Now that we've worked through the story, what do we do with this? Well, I think there's a couple of things that we do with this. Number one is that God helps those who helps themselves. No, this guy couldn't help himself. Like he's stuck on the side of the water. And if you believe that, then Jesus would have walked up and said, well, I mean, you can crawl, right? At least, I mean, do something. I mean, show me that you've got some effort in this because um, I'm not helping. I'll step in as soon as you help yourself go. All right, somebody else, anybody? No, that's crazy, That is contrary to the gospel because the gospel says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were dead in our trespasses, while we were blind and we couldn't see, while we were messed up, Christ comes to us in nothing but the grace of God. It's not about you helping yourself. And if you think that it is, you've missed the gospel. If you take any opportunity in your entire life to share the message God helps those who help themselves with anybody around you, you are not being used by the Lord. That is a great time to look at somebody and say, yes, you are right, that that you can't help yourself here. Uh, You think that paying this bill is your biggest need. It's not. You think that getting over this sickness is your biggest need. It's not, because your biggest need is spiritual and spiritual healing, and only Christ can bring that. You can't help yourself. But Christ came so that you may be restored and be redeemed. And there's such a beautiful gospel message in that. Don't ever say that. And if somebody says that, shut them down because I told you you could. That's wrong. Think again about this. And this may apply to you now. You may think, this is good. This one's not hurting my feelings at all. Here we go. This This is for you. Um, we all are looking for comfort in something. Oh, here he goes. We're looking for satisfaction in something. See, we, we may not have an ailment in our life right now where we're like, God, I need to be healed physically of this. God, I need you to step into this situation, which, by the way, I'm thankfully does. God did an absolute miracle in my life yesterday, and I, we can talk about that some other time, but it was only by the hand of God. Something that something happened. God does those things. God steps in. But, but understand that we tend to find our hope and our comfort in, uh, man, I got that promotion. My paycheck's fixing to go up. It's going to be so good. All, all I needed was another $100 a month, and it's, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. And I got it. Man, I'm going after this job later. Uh, Man, if I get it, man, I'm going to be pulling down 150K a year. Man, it's going to be so good. I'm going to be fine. If I could just get this house, if I could just get this thing, if I could just get my kids to smile at me when they come through the door instead of, I'm hungry, right? All of these things we look for completeness in. We look for our wholeness in. And we understand and we need to understand that your only wholeness is in Christ because if you look for wholeness in anything else, you're doing the exact same thing the Jews did, the exact same things the paralytic did. You're just doing them in a different way. You are trying to satisfy yourself. I am trying to satisfy myself. If we understand the point of the story, it changes everything. The second thing I think that we can get from the story is where is our Bethesda? Where is our Bethesda? See, here's the thing. It it was such an indictment on the Jewish leaders because they were supposed to be taking care of the sick. They were supposed to be taking care of the ostracized and the invalid. They were supposed to be doing those things, but they weren't. They pushed them aside and they were even mad at Jesus for going down there. So here's my question. Have you visited, have you ministered to those that would be considered the the least of these in our society? Where is our heart for evangelism? Uh, Where is our mind for what we can do to bring the good news of the gospel to people who, societally speaking, maybe socioeconomically, maybe whatever, we're, we're better than them. We can't do that. No, if we are going to follow the model of Jesus, this room should be absolutely as diverse as the community. Those that are well physically, those that are sick physically, those who have, those who have not, every ethnicity, every creed Like, it's this room should reflect that. And so the question is, are we going to Bethesda and taking the gospel with us? It's like when we did the a Samaritan woman. Jesus took the gospel, took the message, took his hope where nobody else would go. That's our job. Another question is, what if somebody walks in this room? It's not like us. What's our response? Is our response gonna be like the religious leaders? Oh, you're, you can't be here because of something that you did. See, you've been carrying your mat. You're not supposed to do that. Oh, oh you're that guy down the street that owns the bar, aren't you? Oh, you're, you're that guy that, um, that owns, yeah, no, you can't do that. That can't be our heart. Our heart needs to be come in. We love you. You can have community with us. We're we're receptive of you. Why? Because God is doing a work there if that person's here. And we must be a part of that. We must not only go to Bethesda, but we must bring Bethesda to us too. And that doesn't make some of us very happy. But our community needs support. They need the gospel. They need our love, and we're the ones to do it. And then lastly, Christ takes us from the gutters to the temple. We need to constantly remind ourselves what we have been saved from and what we have been saved to. If we can do that, then our hearts are going to respond in joy. We're not going to have to be encouraged to go to those that are the least of these or the people not like us. Why? Because we know what the gospel did in our life. We can't help but to share it. Every single one of you in this room, now don't start throwing things at me. If you find something that you think is awesome, you share it with people. Don't raise your hands here. Folks that sell essential oils, they have the best thing in the world. I've got a teacher at school with me. And if I say I have an ailment, she's coming up (laughs) and and it's on. I mean, like I'm, I'm ready to go that day. I'm Superman. I can walk through a brick wall if I want to. I'm not saying that they work or they don't. I don't, I don't know. But what I'm saying is that if you find something that you think is profitable to someone's life, what do you do? You share it. That's why people can be so passionate about things that you might look at and say, Does that really matter? It's because they're passionate about it, because they know in their mind, they know with their experience that it works. Guys, if you've been redeemed by Christ, you know with everything that you know that the gospel works. Why aren't we sharing it? Why aren't we moving out of these doors? Why aren't we being Christ in Bethesda? Let's pray.